You're tuned into Toby Talks, episode 16. Don't sleep on the path to becoming a certified registered nurse anesthetist. Now you guys, all my life I had to fight to figure out what a CRNA does. And I am so excited to tell y'all I finally know. Okay, let me stop playing around. But seriously, I literally had no clue what a nurse anesthetist does. You know, so I used to thought like, man, yes, I heard they make big bank, but what do they really do? Are they assisting doctors in the OR? What is it? I mean, are they waking a patient up, putting them to sleep, or just taking vitals? I don't know. But my guest today, Angie, also known as Fuchsia Angie, is going to be sharing with us what a nurse anesthetist does. And she is dropping the gems, y'all. I'm talking about from history all the way to the pay. And you don't want to miss out on some advice she really gives us as millennials. But you know what? I'm already talking too much. Let's go ahead and hop in this conversation. So girl, let's really hop into this. Tell me, how did you pick this field nursing? Like what led you to your journey and where are you now? Um, so nursing, I got to start initially when I was in high school. So my father knew a nurse practitioner who worked with Kaiser Permanente. And so he introduced me early on. So I knew I wanted to be an advanced nurse provider. Um, maybe nurse practitioner, I wasn't quite sure, but I knew nursing was where I wanted to go. So when I graduated high school in 2009, I went to Georgia State and went straight into getting my BSN. Um, and I knew at that point I wanted to do pediatrics. And my husband, who I met in nursing school, who's also a registered nurse anesthetist, um, he was like, I think you should look into going into the ICU because I think you should become, I think you should go into becoming a CRNA also. And that was what his path was. And at the time, I didn't know what a CRNA was. And so I, I listened and I went and shadowed in the ICU, ended up doing an externship and ended up taking a new graduate nurse position in the ICU. Um, but it was, wasn't until actually I had the opportunity to shadow a CRNA um, doing a transplant procedure um, that I was like, I didn't even know nurses could provide anesthesia. And it was absolutely amazing. So at that point, I went ahead and started doing my research and um, started taking it seriously about being able to get my experience and also take the requirements, be able to be eligible for application for CRNA school. Wow. I as well don't know what a CRNA does. I think uh, I didn't even know nurses could even do CRNA. I just always heard the credentialing, but I thought, man, you got to be like mad experience in the ICU, like at least 10 years and then go back and then like almost go through what doctors went through. I really don't know. So how soon, like after, you know, you got on the floor and worked as a nurse, did you go into being, um, going to CRNA school? So I'm going to start a little bit and kind of explain also what CRNA is and what we are. So CRNA stands for Certified Registered Nurse Anesthetist. For those who don't know, we are actually the first um, providers to specialize in anesthesia going back to 150 years ago. Um, that started out with actual Dr. Mayo with Mayo Clinic. Um, so that's just a little bit of history. Uh, we're one of the most trusted professions of nursing, as you already are familiar with. But also, too, it just shows you how long we've been providing anesthesia um, and so we are advanced nurse providers. So you have your minimum of your BSN so you, before you can be eligible for school. Mm-hmm. And then you have to work at minimum one year in the intensive care unit. Most schools do require a GRE score. Um, and then they will generally require shadowing of a CRNA. Um, the average CRNA school applicant at the time of admission normally has about three years of ICU experience. Mm-hmm. I myself had, one, had two years when I started school. 
Um, but I, I applied to CRNA school at my one year mark. Oh, wow. First of all, I want to say thank you for dropping the knowledge real quick. She said, y'all about to know my history. Okay. We, we just ain't nobody's giving anesthesia. We've been doing this for the minute. <laughs> Girl, drop them gems so quick. Yes. <laughs> that is amazing. So I didn't even, I, I really didn't know that. That's amazing as the profession in itself. And then you've been, you applied a year after graduating from your BSN or after a year of being on the floor? Um, so I finished my BSN in 2013. Um, I, after one year of being an ICU nurse in the PICU, I applied to CRNA school. I took my CCR. I was, had just completed my CCR at the time of my first interview. So when I applied at the time, I didn't even, I didn't even have my eligible hours for my CCR. And so when I did get my interview, I presented a updated resume and said, you know, I have since completed my CCR. Um, so it was a lot in a short amount of time when you consider that most ICU orientations are three months. I'm hearing now most are about four months. Um, so if you consider GRE preparation, getting comfortable in the ICU, and then preparing for CRNA school interviews, which can vary in the different types of interview styles depending on the school, you know, it's a lot in a year. And then you're really trying to take on the most complicated patients and really learn a lot in a short amount of time to be able to really show yourself, but also show a school that you are more than competent and willing to be able to be prepared to take on the rigor of going to anesthesia school. Wow. That's, that is real dope. That's, that's intense. You're right. I mean, I'm just thinking about like, wow, you're already doing an internship for three to four months, then you're trying to study for GRE, but you were on it. And I love how you're being so transparent about it because, you know, like I said, those stereotypes or those um, old views of you have to be at the bedside for such a long period of time. Take, coming back to that, did you feel like, when you were going through CNR, CRNA school, did you feel like, man, I really needed to be at the bedside longer? Or did you feel pretty confident in what you've already experienced enough to go into CRNA school and actually start in that field? That's actually a really good question. There's, I have two points to that. So one, um, generally, most CRNA schools, they have, I would say, a hierarchy of the type of ICU experience they desire. So adult ICU um, slash adult cardiac ICU being like number one, pediatrics would be number two and then neonatal being the least desired. Right. So I did pick you. So I felt um, in my disadvantage as an applicant going into CRNA school, not having done any adult ICU experience. And so most schools do take pick you. I want to say probably say 90% take adult, uh, pediatric ICU. Um, but a very small percentage take neonatal because they're very, very different and very specialized. That's often cannot be generalized to the overall population and so I felt like I might not be adequate but then when I was preparing I was like oh I do see a lot more um, and I'm well prepared to go into CRNA school even with my short amount of time being an ICU nurse now the I still feel like the traditional thought with most nursing instructors because let's be honest most people who go into nursing education have often been um, a nurse at the bedside at minimum five to 15 years. Yeah. So they still think that most advanced nurse providers, not just CRNAs, but even um, nurse practitioners or even um, certified midwives should probably be a nurse and practicing their specialty at least five years. Cause the, I guess the standard, that's the standard or there must be an unspoken standard that I'm not aware of, but the new modern age millennial who's in nursing, they don't need to be, in their profession that long, if you are taking on the, the critical patients you're desiring to learn, you're going to continue education, you're really taking responsibility for your craft and your specialty and your mm -hmm. responsibility as a professional, 
then if you feel like you are prepared, then who is someone else to tell you based on their own expectation? So if a school, if the COA, which is the accrediting body for nursing and teacher education in the United States, says all you need is a year minimum, I don't care about anybody else's opinion. Okay? So I feel like you should go ahead and apply. Ooh, I know that's right. Oh, girl, yes. I'm, I am like, ah, I'm so glad that we're on the same page because sometimes it's like so hard to like vocalize that to some of the older generations that kind of make you feel um, less than because you're not as experienced as them. And, and that's true. The new, the new generation, the millennials, the, the way we do things, we truly understand and love and desire what we do, but we don't want anyone putting a time stamp on when we can make our achievements or when we can, you know, branch out and do more um, that we know we're capable of. So were you able to work during your program? Like, was it so intense? Like, kind of give me a little bit of background of what your program kind of put you through and, and the process of being an anesthesiologist in a little summary, but, and also were you able to work doing that? So that's actually I think the number probably number one question I get. So there's a point to address. So it's all dependent on the school, and I'm gonna actually talk a little bit about how I'm seeing nursing and schools change, and even how they're trying to address the financial strain on being going to CRNA school, which is tends to be I feel like people's number one reason why they don't choose a CRNA profession, even though they desire it first. Um, so I work PRN. Uh, in CRNA school. So there are two types of programs. You have a front-loaded program where you do your didactic anywhere from 12 to 16 months. And then the last 16 months of your program is clinical. And then you have an integrated program where you generally do, I think the first normally eight weeks are straight didactic. And then you have a proportion of so many clinical hours and so many didactic hours. And as you progress in the program, you decrease your didactic hours and increase in clinical where you're doing just straight clinical. Now, if you think about traditional nursing school, we do an integrated program. Um, I personally am a proponent of going to a front-loaded program. When you think about surgeons, surgeons learn how to cut and then they actually learn how to practice cutting. So I think that concept to me is a little bit easier and also it's a lot easier to be in a front-loaded program and work PRN. And the reason why is while you're doing classroom, you can generally schedule a PRN shift if the requirement is functional for your ability to learn and stay on top of it. So, for example, when I worked in the NICU, I'm not NICU trained. I was a PICU trained nurse, and we would float to the NICU. Mm-hmm. But me being at a children's hospital, we had a surgical NICU, which is not the same as being a NICU that's in a um, burning hospital. The acuity is a lot different, and so you have micropremies at the age of 23, 24 weeks if they're viable who need immediate surgical, um, immediate surgery along with medical management. Mm. Uh, so that was not really what I would see. If they came to Choa, they often were stabilized and then came in for surgery or they got sick there, and then you would have more surgical involvement. So it's a little different. Um, so when I would come in, um, while I'm trying to learn everything about anesthesia, I'm also actually reading a NICU, NICU book so I can be really be comfortable being in the NICU because mm-hmm. it, was, it was so different from what I saw at, at my NICU. Um, so I would say if you're going to do PRN in school, do a specialty that you actually know, not, not do something new. Um, but it's always, it's always up to the school's discretion if you're going to work PRN. I had to get special permission from my program director to um, work PRN. Some schools have a max hours you can work. Um, 
And if your grades slip, then you can't work. I would say everyone's ability also to work PRN in school is varies and it varies with your ability to comprehend information and time um, and level of intelligence. Not that people aren't, but it's more so an issue of you people know where they're at and what their needs are with learning information. And so it's difficult to balance trying to work in family life and then going to school when you're already putting in 40 to 60 hours of study time. It's a lot. Mm. Would you compare it to nursing school? Like by the, you know, the, or I wouldn't say compare it, but was the straining, the straining of having to study and balance life, was it equivalent to the same kind of experience you had in nursing school or was just like, you know, on steroids? I think it's a rem- I think it's reminiscent. Um, I don't think they're even remotely similar um, because also too the responsibility is so different. A lot of people ask me, "Well, do you feel like ICU prepared you?" Well, ICU. Pre- I think what ICU does to prepare a, a nurse anesthetist is ability to think in stressful situations, be comfortable with vasoactive drips, be comfortable with sedation, be comfortable with ventilator, but that's in a very modified manner. And then you're taking on the responsibility of being the one to not just diagnose, but initiate and plan and choose your intervention and your anesthetic. That's not the same. Wow. That's a as a nurse, we, we notify, we recognize um, changes in our, based on our assessment and we make recommendations and we, that's not the same thing. We're doing all of that and we're making the choices on how to respond and what to do. Wow. Wow. That's a really, I guess, like you said, that's two completely different things. So you're kind of, you're relearning or not even relearning. You're being taught some, a whole nother way of providing care, completely different from like how we're uh, trained in nursing school. Wow. So what, what challenges did you face in the program? Like I know working was one where you had to get permission and stuff, but um, in the program itself, what other challenges did you face that kind of made it, you know, not as easy or smooth sailing, not any program is smooth sailing, but what challenges did you face that kind of made it a little difficult, but you made it through? I think going back to the millennial being young, um, particularly being a young black woman, I'm 27. So when I started Saturday school, I was 25. Mm. Um, so when I come into the operating room and I have a, a circulator nurse who talks to me as if I'm not a nurse, like I'm your colleague. I don't know who you're talking to. Um, but when I communicate with any adult, I communicate with respect and I demand the same level um, of respect. And so that would be something that I would find interesting when you would speak with other um, professionals, especially nursing professionals. And there's still that nurses eat their young concept. And yeah. I feel like, with a lot of older nurses as a young nurse going back to get her advanced degree, you would have those experiences. And so I really drive it home when I even like have students, like you really patience and being understanding, but also to like really being confident and sticking up for yourself. Um, Because I'm sometimes discouraged by the experiences of dealing with people who seek almost to discourage you and how they interact with you mm. going back to school being so young. And I just think it's disappointing. Um, and mm. I think as a, in the nursing profession that we really need to open our hearts and minds to the, the new concept of nurses going back who are younger, who are feel like they're ready, but also taking on the desire of wanting to help encourage and grow them in their skill set. Because while I do recognize that, yes, I do not have as much experience as you, my experience is still valuable. Exactly. And so shifting the idea from 
lack of experience to, okay, well, how is she valuable to us as a team member? And that, I feel like once that mindset changes with the, I feel like the older group of nurses, to me, it will make it less hostile. Um, even that, and that includes just bedside nursing too, altogether. I, I saw that when I was a new grad in the ICU. You are absolutely right. Um, I think that's a struggle that a lot of um, millennials face. Um, and that eating your young concept, at, period, that's bullying. I don't care where it's coming from, what angle, lateral, horizontally, whatever. It's, it's just bullying. But I think it's just that intimidation or I, I can't speak for the older generation. I'm not sure what it is, but it's almost... It doesn't feel good, of course, but it makes you feel as if like, wow, I'm I'm looking up to you thinking you would be so supportive of me, you know, wanting to go back to school or wanting to learn. But instead, you're chewing me down because I haven't been or I haven't done what you've done for a long period of time. You know what I mean? And, and that to me, that concept really needs like some reorganization because I feel like both sides can gain on each other, you know, like we're coming in with, you know, technology and advancements and evidence-based practices and all these things that we, we love to share and grow on. And you're coming and, you know, and you're meeting the, um, a, an older seasoned nurse with her experience on a different kind of patient she's met and the different kind of changes. Like, I feel like hand in hand, they both can help each other out. But when you have one that's just like, you know, beating you down and making you feel like crap because you're young. I mean, to me, that's just ridiculous, but it's, it's the truth. And I'm, I'm glad that you highlight that. And, um, and I'm, you know, of course, I'm sorry that you went through that, like every nurse does, but I love that you highlighted that you have to stand up for yourself and demand that respect, no matter what my age is. And, you know, it's so funny when you were saying that, it made me think about it even more because I feel like now as millennials, we're facing the concept of how do I get comfortable with really being the person who's in charge mm-hmm. and I'm much younger. I'm, I'm, the, I'm basically the leader of the situation and how am I to basically articulate what I would need and what I want you to do because now I'm in a higher position of power, but I have less experience and I have less age on you Mm. that dynamic and I feel like trying to be comfortable with that concept because I'm the youngest person all the time in the room now my surgeon is obviously older than me but he's the the, he's the captain and I would say I'm the co-captain um and if I need anything you know I have to communicate with my nurses in the room and so and my scrub techs anybody that's in the room we're all a team at the end of the day we're here for the patient and Mm -hmm. so that was something I felt like I always would try to reconcile is how do I communicate what I need or how do I be direct when it's necessary? Um, if I feel like I need to confront about something without, um, coming off almost, I don't know. I, I feel like I would second guess myself in, um, not really knowing how to be confrontational when it was necessary. Um, because I, cause I would feel like, oh, well, how dare she say something, you know, she hasn't been doing this that long. And so I remember I met a CRNA in school and he was like, well, yeah, you're going to be the youngest person in the room. You know what you know. And you're a wise CRNA always knows when to ask for help. And so I just always remember that when I'm communicating or when I need something and I feel like I need to I don't know, I guess more, more better represent myself um, or be, I think I say be more confident regarding the leadership, but just um, it's confrontational and it might be uncomfortable, but not feeling like I should not speak what I need to 
because there's someone who's older or has more experience and it, that dynamic might be awkward. That makes sense. No, it does. Girl, it makes a lot of sense because when you think about it, even in nursing school or I'm not sure about other fields, but I know specifically in nursing school, that wasn't something that we were trained on and being prepared on because it felt like nursing school only trained you to be a nurse and then you're going to be at the bedside for however long. And then from there, you'll somehow gain that confidence because you've been the bedside for so long. They're not equipping, um, to me, my perspective, I don't feel like they're equipping the generation that are coming in like us and the generations after us to be true leaders now. It's like once you gain your, your experience or once you're at the bedside for such a long time, then you become a leader because that's what's going to make you stand out because you have that length of time as an experienced um, nurse and not more as how to be a leader, how to be direct, how to stand up. Because mo- remember, as a nurse, a lot of times we're dealing with just the interaction from the provider. And that in itself is like a conflict sometimes when you feel like, oh, because he has a higher degree than you, he speaks to, or not he, he or she will speak to a nurse a certain way. And, you know, all that communication issues that, that goes on between a nurse and a doctor. But I don't really feel like they prepare us for that leadership role. Like you said, like, knowing how to be confident and stand up and say what you have to say, especially when it's to someone who's been there longer, who may feel like, who are you to tell me I've been in this role longer than you. And I went through the same kind of experience too, when I moved from the bedside and went to a supervisory role and I was having to work with um, in partnership with other nurses who were way older than me. And they would literally like, who are you? And what, what, what company are you coming from that hires people like you? And that was, going on the fact that I was a woman, I was black and I was young. So why would they hire someone like you? You know, as if like I didn't have worth to give. But what I learned through that process was, I don't need to tell you who I am, I just need to show you. And when my work showed like, wow, this girl knows what she's doing. This girl really is about patient care. This girl really is about, you know, being empowering for nurses and being a leader. You know, and I felt like that was the way I leveled up You know, like I I couldn't really do that, you know, confrontational back and forth thing. It's like I learned to demand respect, but then I let my work speak for itself. So I don't know. Is that something that you kind of felt like you feel that kind of way in in being a CRNA? Like you felt like maybe the way you gave your patient care, the way you were so firm and you knew what you were doing kind of helped build that respect from, um, you know, the older seasoned nurses or seasoned professions? I definitely do. I think that, um, Really, I've always felt that I don't think talking shows how well you do. Mm-hmm. Um, I was always taught that a great provider shows how good they are actually in time of crisis. And so I always let my skill set as a student and even now as a practicing provider be that. And so if I feel like someone making a suggestion and I disagree with that, then I, and that needs to override them, I feel confident enough now that you've seen me before, you've watched me, you need to trust me as you have before in the situation. Um, and so that's kind of how I deal with feeling I need to be confrontational with people and knowing that they have a track record with, track record with me, but if they don't be able to articulate to why I disagree and what I think we should do and kind of go forward um, and hope that in us choosing to disagree, how we can make a decision together that's best for the patient. Um, because sometimes it's a difference of understanding difference of opinion or, and, and often too, and people not knowing what you do, um, mm. from, you know, you have different 
as a student, you know, coming into different clinical sites, they don't know where you're at, what you do. So you're trying to figure out where the student is in their clinical set, how much assistance or non-assistance they need. Um, also, too, with the type of culture of that anesthesia group and or um, the, the educator's preference, because every CRNA has their own preferences versus safety issues. Um, and then you come in and you're trying to, you're essentially disrupting that dynamic, and then you're trying to create your own um, anesthetic plan that you would do um, mm-hmm. on top of learning. Um, and so I think that as you, as students, as a young CRNAs um, in the profession, I feel like it's always wise to be humble and look and listen. Um, but instead of arguing with words, let your skill set show itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and often it allows opportunity for, for questions. And, and two, uh, also I, I learned when I was in school, if a CRNA doesn't like something or they get upset about something, it was often because something has happened in the past. So I, my Zoom response would be, so what happened before for you to have this type of reaction? Because mm. often it generally wouldn't be safety. It's just a preference or an experience that was not yeah, yeah, um, yeah. a negative experience. And and um, from that from that moment forward, I'd be like, okay, well, I won't do this with you. But, you know, I understand like, why you don't like this per se, but I still think this is a great option. And I would say that. And so towards the end of my um, student learning, I would be very comfortable with communicating. Well, this is what I like to do and this is why. And if you don't like it, that's, you know, I understand. Um, and this is what I would do going forward. And even now when I work with, I work in an anesthesia care team model where I work with anesthesiologists. And so I have some anesthesiologists who don't like certain, um, certain type of anesthetic plans. And so I'll say, well, this is, this is what I would do in the situation. Um, and then we'll discuss and I'll say, okay, maybe not, maybe so. Um, and sometimes, you know, i I would, my plan will be the one that's chosen. Sometimes it won't be, but either way, I still learn a lot and I don't feel less valuable, even though I'm not the more experienced provider in the team. That's so good. And that's so important. That is like so, so important. So I'm glad that you really, really like dug deep and kind of like highlighted that. And it's, it's always good to, to know where that person's coming from. And I think for me, that was where my experience kind of changed as well as a nurse, because I don't think certain seasoned nurses know that they're actually planting seeds that aren't going to be really good for new nurses coming in. And that was like, you know, whenever you talk about a, um, uh, a new doctor coming in, you know, they're doing their residency and you're kind of like, you've already been programmed and trained that they don't know anything and you got to double check them because the new doctors are so dumb and the nurses know all the experience and stuff. And I'm getting this from seasoned nurses. So I'm coming in with that concept too. Like, Oh, you know, we're so much better than these resident doctors and blah, 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 blah. But then, you know, when I decided not to take on the opinions and the um, past experience from other nurses and started actually talking and kind of interacting with you know, the residents are coming in because they're also millennials like me too. And, you know, it made the communication so much different, you know, like people make mistakes. They're in the training phase. That's what they're here for, you know, and it kind of bridged that communication instead of being like, Oh my God, this doctor's so dumb. Let me call the attending. Let me do this and this, you know, I actually went to the doctor like, Hey, you're, you're about to give some, some lactose drips. And I mean, some lactose um, medication to this, 
to this 15 year old and it's for you ordered for a, a newborn, you know, like you want me to change that. Right. You know, like it's a con- it's a basic conversation that you can have and not make it feel like, Oh, because he's a resident and you're a nurse and it's like a power struggle. There shouldn't be a power struggle based on your, um, your experience or your level. It should really be a team effort because we are human. We do make, we do make mistakes and then we do take on um, emotions or past experience and present it to every, one or every case like it's the same and it's not so I'm really glad that you said you know let me see why you think this way or what happened before that you know you don't want to do it this route that I'm suggesting I think that's really 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 good advice and what I really want to ask let's just say I'm a high school student and I have no idea what a CRNA is could you kind of dumb it down for me a little bit like what do you do like what are your processes like can you give me a patient example or you know make it as like plain and layman's terms and not, you know, no medical terminology, but if you were going to talk to me as a a high school student who's probably going to be excited to go into the field of nursing and want to pursue a higher up degree, how would you explain CRNA to me? So I would say that a CRNA is an advanced practice nurse, so you have to go back to school after you've already gotten your bachelor's degree and you specialize in anesthesia where you put people to sleep for surgery. So, and there's multiple types of anesthesia. Um, our, what we essentially do is take care of the patient all the way from the pre-anesthesia phase all the way to the patients go home and making sure that they don't have any complications from us giving them anesthesia. And that can include anywhere from patients having what you might see when women are pregnant, epidurals for labor pain or um, just sedation for um, things like colonoscopies, you can see a little bit of everything, um, all types of work environments from surgery centers to endoscopy suites to um, even clinics. You see a little bit of everything. And then you also see we have multiple types of specialties from pediatrics, obstetrics, certain types of clinics, even like um, cancer clinics you can see. So if you want to specialize, you can. We have now there's a pain management fellowship for nurse anesthetists that is um, accredited by the COA. So you can definitely do a lot of different things and you don't have to just do one type or you can do multiple types if you want to keep it interesting. Nice. Girl, I hope you're speaking for high school students at they, you know, at their schools and stuff, because you really, you played that out really, really good. That gave me a really good overview. I was low-key trying to dumb it down for me, because, girl, I still didn't. I was like, what do y'all do? Okay. So now I get it. <laughs> Thank you so much. But um, my next question, because, you know, of course, as a millennial, we still like to live our lives and live our best life, you know, enjoy our, our, um, our yes. families, travel. <laughs> what is your work-life balance as a CRNA? So, it's, you know, it's, it varies. I'll speak a little bit about different um, CRNAs that I know their schedules and mine. So, um, for example, I work um, at a level one trauma center. So I was really, to me, it was really important to not do a lot of call. So mm-hmm. most level one trauma centers, you do a lot of call. Uh, my husband used to work at a different level one trauma center where he did, I think, like three or four days of call a month. But he lived, we lived within the call radius so he could do call from home. I don't live within the 30 minute radius where I do, where I work at. So for me to do call, I would actually have to either stay in house in the, on call room or I would have to get a hotel. 
So I only have like a weekend requirement for call a year, which is amazing. Um, And then I work a rotate, a rotating schedule of three to four days a week. Um, And I don't do weekends. So I can work anywhere from, I usually work anywhere from 10 to 14 or 16 hour days. And then I have some days where I get off before 12 o'clock, which is great. Um, But it's like, it's great for me because I have a much better work-life balance. I most what's also too a lot of people don't realize is that surgery is elective 90 percent of your surgeries are elective so generally surgery starts at about 7 a.m and most places aim to be closed by three so most anesthesia providers anesthesiologists and nurse anesthetists alike tend to work seven to three um that's just because that's just how surgery centers work and so they seek to decrease their operating staff and operating rooms by that time so I didn't want that. I never worked a nine to five. I didn't want to start now. I don't have kids. So I, that type of schedule did not appeal to me. Mm-hmm. A lot of my colleagues who do have kids, they love that schedule and that's great for them, but that's just not my thing. Um, I like the option of working late shifts. And if I want to pick up overtime, I can, I can, but I have flexibility of working at eight to 12 to six hours. It doesn't really matter. Um, but like my husband works um, two days a week at a, a hospital and then other two to three days a week, he does freelance anesthesia where he's an independent contractor and he goes in to work at either dentist office, hospitals, urology clinics, GI clinics, and he basically is a fill-in anesthesia provider for their normal full-time staff who may be out on vacation or sick. Wow, that that is amazing. I, I'm so glad that you shared that because I'm like, hold up, she, you can do seven to three in the clinic and then you can you can do that, you can free. It's like very, even in that profession itself, it's very, it's very, very broad. Because um, like you said, now you young, you know, you can, you can do your schedule how you want to, but then when you get a family and you want to have something more, I guess, consistent, then you can also switch it up and do, you know, seven to three or, or work in, you know, the selective surgeries and stuff. So I think that's like, pretty awesome that's really you got a good girl you got a good deal huh okay girl it's good you can even do 24 hours if you want like um people do 22 24 hour shifts so like i know one of my older colleagues she when her child was in the NICU she did um a 24 and a 12 so she could be with her son Mm, wow that makes sense depending on your institution Mm -hmm. you can do a lot of different schedules so let's talk about pay because you know that's all we ever hear is oh anesthesia they be they balling out of control they living their best life <laughs> and you know you ain't gotta tell me all the digits but comparing to when you were a bedside nurse working pick you to now you know you're a crna and, and you you know have your awesome work-life balance what was the pay the pay change the pay raise you know give, give us a little you know give a little something so the national average uh, salary for incoming CRNAs in the United States is about one fifty, hundred fifty thousand dollars. Um, so the average, I feel like the nurse average salary, I feel like it varies because in Atlanta, where there's so one is just very, I would say, very chocolate. There's a lot mm-hmm. of chocolate nurses in Atlanta, so there's a lot of men who make. I know multiple men who were bedside nurses who work. Overtime worked night weekends because they worked all the extra differentials. Yeah. And they were making six figures as a bedside nurse. Yeah. Um, my husband was one of those. So before he went to CRNA school, his friends were like, dude, why are you going back to CRNA school? You already make six figures. He was like, yeah, but I'm working for these six figures. I'm not. Yep. It's a little different. <laughs> um, so 
if you were to base, let's say, if the nurse who's not working any probably nights, weekends, any overtime, probably let's say fifty thousand dollars, you're going to triple your income essentially. Yeah, that's that's exactly, and I'm glad that you highlight that because I think people get um, nursing misconstrued. They think, oh, you're you're a nurse, so you must be you know balling out of control. But what you fail to realize is that to be able to have that. The, that max of an income, I have to work those those hours, like 12 hours, you know, doing three to four to five shifts a week to be able to do that. And I think that was also the cool thing about nursing too, is very flexible. Because if you know, like, oh, you know, I want to, I want to go out of the country this week, let me just work these three shifts and I'm good, you know. Um, but that's not right. consistent. You really got to put in a lot of work and it starts to, you know, give out on your body and your energy. And, you, you know, do you really want to work this hard to be able to make this kind of income? So I like how you gave that example of like what your husband was doing before, but granted he's, he's now working like a normal nurse shift, you know, working do three or um, two to three a week. And he's doing that as a CRNA, CRNA. And on top of that, he's also contractual. So say if he didn't want to work anymore, he just worked by some contracts and still, you know, be able to bring in that kind of income. So I, I like that you highlighted that. So can you tell me like, what was one of the biggest highlights for you as a CRNA? Um, you know, it's interesting you said that because I think it probably occurred when I was um, my senior year in nursing, I mean, CRNA school, and I went to an Atlanta clinical site and I met, I knew of this CRNA, her name is Kim Kimball um, from Facebook on the Black, Black Nurses Rock, but also Black CRNA's Facebook group. And um, I got to meet her in person on my first day at that hospital site. And she was amazing. She was, she's in her early thirties and she's a cardiac and nurse anesthetist there. And she was intelligent and bright and, and assertive. And I had not seen a young black CRNA since I had desired, had been on my CRNA journey. So she was the first person and also the embodiment of what I wanted to be like. I'm young, I'm black and I'm strong. And I was like, so when I met her, I was like, Oh my God, like you are what I want to be like. Like, and I told her that she just laughed. I was like, no, like I was like, no, you know, I was like, I have met so many amazing women who I've been doing this for 20, 30 years, and I love that they are so passionate about it, but I can identify with you because we're at a very similar point in our lives. And I was like, you don't know how much it means to me to be able to see someone like you who's aggressive and like in their learning, like she's already, she's doing her doctorate, her DMP right now, she'll graduate in um, December of this year with it. And I was just like, wait, how long have you been doing um, being a CRNA before you went back into your cardiac anesthesia? And she was like, girl, a year. I thought out after a year of working as a CRNA, I went back and got trained to do cardiac. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, I just was so impressed. And I was like, I, it did a lot for me. I didn't realize how much it meant now as I even talked to other people. But I'm like, it means a lot to see someone who's in a similar demographic as you because like I said, you just don't see as many young people. And mm-hmm. so I would have liked, I wish I had met her sooner. And I, she's like my, I'm actually like a mentor to me now, but she's also one of my very close friends now. That is so awesome. Like for real, I'm so, I didn't even know that we had a black nurses rock page. Um, so now I'm going to find out about that, you know, but it, <laughs> girl, you better, you're just giving all kinds of knowledge. Okay. Y'all check out the black nurses rock on Facebook. Um, but I love that you said that because you, you don't understand how important it is to see 
someone who looks like you, who's in the same like age bracket as you, who is out there saving lives and doing it. You know what I mean? And it encourages us who are probably in that same pursuit to go that same way. Because if we don't have like, you know, the seasonal nurses encouraging us and we kind of feel beat up there, we want to see someone who's who's um, in that path as us, you know what I mean? So it's very, very important that for me, I feel like it's really big for me to help mentor other nurses that are even in nursing school or trying to, you know, find their career path in nursing because we are in this together, you know, and I know it's hard by, by yourself. And I felt that way, you know, going into leadership, I was like, man, I don't have anyone that I could truly like give advice on. Like I haven't seen a woman an African-American woman young in this kind of role dealing with this kind of animosity or this kind of disrespect, what do I do? You know, who do I go to to ask for advice for this? You know, I kind of figure it out on my own. And now that I figured out on my own, I, there's no way that I can neglect another sister coming up who or, or another nurse coming up into this position who, who has no idea how to deal with this kind of issues or who has no idea how to make her mark or, or speak up for herself. You know, I feel like I have to, you know, help, in any way possible, because I don't want you to struggle. I, just because I did does not mean I want that for you. You know what I mean? So I'm, I'm glad that you were able exactly. to find a mentor like that. That's freaking awesome. So what advice would you give to anyone, especially as millennials, who are trying to get into the career path of a CNR, CRNA? Like, what advice would you give them? What kind of encouragement would you like to share with them? Um, so one, your experiences don't count you out. So I started hashtag my CRNA journey on my Instagram page for a couple of reasons, because I get it. Not everyone was a model college student. People live their best life and sometimes their grades suffer as a result of living their best life. Right. It doesn't mean that you can't go to CRNA school. What it means is that you may have to pay more to retake some classes. Mm-hmm. Um, you may need to go ahead and switch jobs so you can get that ICU job that'll make you eligible to apply to CRNA school. That means you might have to retake that GRE more than once. Mm. That's okay. There are other people out here who have done it too, but you have to be honest with yourself too. If you need to do that, you can't just go like, I'm a big believer of you have to steward your time. I'm all about having faith and praying, but you got to steward your time and your responsibility. Okay. And so you have to still do the work. Like it's not, I, I didn't strap my fingers and just get here. So if you know that, you know, you might need to do things differently because you're not the traditional student, quote unquote, at the mm-hmm. time, but put in the work, do the research. Um, if you're in nurse, if you want to do nursing, and even if you're not sure you want to go back to nursing up to an advanced practice degree, do not neglect your grade. Because yeah. when you just, if you decide to go back to school later, you don't have to stress about retaking courses because your grades are inadequate to be even considered for CRNA school. They're not going to even look at you with less than 3.0. You have a C in your courses. They're going to ask you to retake them for most places and, or say what happened and they still won't actually let you into the school. And it's not a matter of me. It's just a matter of that's just what the standard is across the board. So most people, what's recommended by most CRNA schools is if you have a C in any of your like, pathology, your um, chemistry and or your pharmacology courses to take a graduate level course, get an A in it and to show that you can do the work and go to the program. Because mm-hmm. you have to keep in mind that while you might be this great person, you have a great story, that's cool and all, but if you can't do the work, you're taking a spot from a student who can't. And you need to be able to demonstrate that to them. This is true. Taking chances is great, but there's still school. This is, yeah. There's still business. 
So my question to you, because I like the way you stated that, and, and it seems like the core classes that you kind of mentioned were the same core classes that you kind of need to, you know, also do well in to even apply to nursing school. Does the classes that you just mentioned, does that also imply with nursing school? Like with the classes that you took in your nursing school, would that also impact what they would look at or would they look at that kind of differently? Because you know how a nursing school, you can get a C and still pass and still, but you can't retake that, you know, you can only retake the ones that you, um, your entry level courses into the program. So that's actually a great question. Um, Yes and yes. So in a CRNA school, you're going to take advanced pathway, you're going to take advanced farm, you're going to take, um, you're going to do chemistry. So if you get C's in those courses, those are, like, anesthesia is very heavy in those. Like, there's no way to say, well, you know, I was going through life, and I mean, and, and I understand that. Like, it, it gives, when you interview and you explain, this is why I got this C, this is going on, if you get an interview with those grades, that gives a better whole picture to your situation. It doesn't negate the fact that we don't know if you can do the work. You mm-hmm. see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I think that's just the reality of the situation. Um, and so they have a lot of school, nursing schools have a non-degree speaking option where you can take advanced farm and advanced patho at a graduate level. So my mentor, Kim Kimball, she actually, her grades weren't that high applying to CRNA school. So she took advanced farm and advanced patho as a non-degree speaking student at a graduate level when she applied to CRNA school. Oh. And she got in. Okay. So for people who have gotten C's in those courses, I always recommend retaking those and um, taking them at the graduate level as a non-degree seeking student. Thank you. I hope that helps you guys out there. They're like, dang, you know, my grades ain't there. Da, 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 da. At least you have a, because it's true. Like I know when I was in nursing school, I went through some ish, you know, I got back in the program with a 2.1 the second time because the first time was just a lot going on and stuff. So yes, life happens, but you know, there's also ways to, you know, still go for your dreams. So I like that you even, you know, mentioned that, you know, taking the, you know, non-degree course and these advanced practice can also help get you into the field that you're hoping to get into. So thank you for sharing that. And I just want to thank you so much for your time today. Like, I feel like my audience are just so excited to hear you and hear like what it's like to be a millennial, to be a a CRNA, and then the things that you went through. And, And just thank you for sharing your transparency. I appreciate you so, so much. No, thank you for having me. This was a really, really, really great talk. I'm, I'm really encouraged by this conversation, and I'm really glad that we really kind of dug in more about the millennial issue because I don't think it's talked about enough. It's an issue I feel like that affects not just CRNAs, but also nurse practitioners and midwives and just new grad nurses altogether. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. There were so many gems dropped. And if you want to reach me or hit me up, feel free to contact me through my email at tobytalks at tobytodge.com. Again, that's tobytalks at tobytodge.com. Feel free to follow me on Instagram or slide me a DM. That's at toby.talks. Again, IG, toby.talks. I also got Twitter, like everybody else. So feel free to hit me up. And my Twitter is this is Toby Talks. I look forward to talking to you guys very soon. And remember, I'm rooting for you. So go out there and be great. Till next time. Talk to you later.